Hi, you're listening to Bluffs, Brooks, and Byways, a podcast highlighting the best of Northeast Iowa. I'm your host and producer, Morgan Thias, the communication and outreach specialist for Northeast Iowa Resource Conservation and Development, also known as RCD. We are a small nonprofit that serves seven counties in Iowa. Alamakee, Buchanan, Chickasaw, Clayton, Fayette, Howard, and Winnishik, in addition to byways that travel through Jackson, Jones, and Delaware counties. Our mission is to recognize opportunities and provide leadership to make Northeast Iowa a vibrant, place-based model for the nation. We love the people and places that make Northeast Iowa unique and special. episode of Bluffs, Brooks, and Byways. Today is a little change of pace in regards to our typical podcast. Normally, we chat about something historical or a location to check out along the byway, but for those of you who are new to the podcast or the area, at Northeast Iowa RCND, our goal is to serve all seven counties in the region through educating and providing opportunities the best way possible. Super vague, I know. But that's why it's so great. We're able to work with landowners, conservation departments, and residents in ways that benefit them. Today with me, I have coworker Ross Evelsizer, the Natural Resource Projects Director for the RCND. I'm really excited for this interview because while I'm passionate about tourism, communication, and all things marketing, Ross is an expert when it comes to the outdoors, specifically our watershed projects. Now, I feel obligated to preface this interview by saying I am not knowledgeable in anything as it relates to farming, crops, or the watershed project. I'm here to learn with you all as an audience, but without further ado, I can let Ross introduce himself. Last time I had a coworker on the podcast, he couldn't remember where he was from, so I hope that's not the case with you. Why don't you share with our audience your background? Yeah, so I grew up in Decorah, then I went to school in South Dakota at South Dakota State University, go Jackrabbits. And then, um, you know, after fooling around on the prairies for about 10 years and getting married, um, we moved back to the Decorah area where I've been working here at the RCD for like the last eight years. So I uh, grew up doing a lot of hunting and fishing, and that's kind of you know, so love the outdoors, love kayaking and, and being on the water. And, um, you know, so that's kind of where my connection to doing the natural resources projects come from. We have a lot of great natural resources in Northeast Iowa. So uh, kind of dedicating my career to enhancing and protecting those. Northeast Iowa is an incredible place to live and grow up. Can you tell us about your role at the RCND? I know you're the natural resource project director, but what does that mean? The titles are all just kind of made up anyway. But, you know, what we try to focus on is, you know, like you said, that make Northeast Iowa great. We have a very unique landform region here in the in the Driftless region. So we have things that you can't find in other parts of Iowa, like trout streams and, you know, algific talus slopes and some really unique features. And so it's critical to protect those. And so we work on different projects to try and support a lot of the partners that we work with by bringing in outside funding to either work on protection or enhancement of our natural resources. And some of the cool things we worked on are like mapping out trails, routes, or doing actually implementation of conservation practices to help protect uh, the watersheds or, um, you know, 
from tree plantings, all sorts of different kinds of projects. So it's kind of a vague title and um, that means that we get to kind of do whatever we want under that title. That is the beauty of our CND that it mm -hmm. is ever changing. And I know we're going to talk more about the watershed project specifically, but some of those projects that you just listed, are those just your projects or throughout the organization? Do you want to talk about the projects you have had a hand in? So yeah, there's actually, you know, kind of several of us that work on different aspects of the natural resources projects, I guess. But one cool thing about working here is that, you know, all we try and tie all the projects together, whether it's natural resources or marketing or and economic development. I actually started in 2013 to work with the Turkey River watershed. And so I still work with the Turkey River watershed. Uh, we do a lot of like long range, um, large watershed management planning. So that means like, you know, looking at the whole watershed, uh, the landscape um, as it's functioning and, and try to make improvements on that. From that point, we've done, you know, a lot of different things from like uh, water sampling, done some tile outlet sampling, try to work with a lot of farmers and producers on their private lands to, to make improvements and, you know, make a strong economic contribution through agriculture, but also do so in a way that uh, protects the natural resources and makes farming sustainable into the future. So getting back to why we're here, let's hear it from you. What are the watershed management authorities or maybe in general, the watershed management projects and how does our CND play a role in that? The watershed management authorities sound really kind of um, authoritative, but they're actually not at all. So they kind of were born when we had catastrophic flooding in 2008 in Iowa. And essentially, it was a legislative action that allowed for watershed management authorities to exist. They come together under a 28E agreement, and uh, that's just a formal document that kind of binds the organization. And the watershed management authority is made up of county boards of supervisors, soil and water district commissioners, and then also community representatives. So all of those entities within a watershed have the ability to join the watershed management authority. And their express purpose is to assess flooding and water quality in that watershed and then develop plans and, you know, assess and try and do things to mitigate flooding and improve water quality. So we've been working with the Turkey River since they formed. They were one of the first groups that formed actually, and they formed in 2012. And we've been working with them since that time. I kind of serve as the coordinator per se for that larger area of the Turkey, but there's a lot of smaller projects that go on within that area. And then we have different roles with the Upper Iowa and also the Upper Wapsie. And there's actually 26 or seven watershed management authorities now in Iowa. And um, like I said, the Turkey was one of the first three that formed in 2012. There's a lot more of these groups, but like I said, they, they don't have any authority, but it's just now there's somebody to kind of cross political boundaries and work across these things because watersheds don't follow political boundaries, right? That's kind of the role of these groups is to join two entities that have never worked together, like cross county boundaries or a community with a county and work on sort of these projects that benefit everybody. That makes much more sense. But let's back up a little bit further. I know you were talking about the flood of 2008 kind of kicking all of this off in 2012. But what about the history of flooding in Iowa and why is the quality of water important? Flooding is a natural process, right? So we have all these rivers. Um, we don't have a lot of lakes in Iowa, but we have a lot of rivers and streams. And flooding is a natural process. It's flooded forever. Like that's how our landscape formed. And so we can't ever say, you know, we're going to stop the process of flooding because that's not a realistic um, term. But the type of flooding that we've had, especially in recent history, has been pretty significant. So 
2008 was one event. And when we say event, that's essentially just, you know, we're referring to something that's like a really big event. And scientists will call it like an episodic event. So like an episodic event would be like the impact that wiped out the dinosaurs. Like we're talking something that's very low odds of happening again. The 2008 flood was something that like mathematically the odds of that happening in our lifetimes was extremely low. Since that time, we've had at least two, maybe three more that were basically on the level of the 2008 flood, uh, just not as widespread. But that mathematical probability that's happened like three or four times. So now it's like, okay, so why is this happening? You know, for something that mathematically improbable to happen that frequent in a relatively short amount of time, you have to start looking at like what has changed um, to make that happen. So there's a couple of things. One is we're getting more rainfall in a year, and we're also getting more intense rainfalls. So we'll go longer between rainfalls, but when we get that rain, it's heavier and more intense than, than typical. So instead of getting a one-inch rain, we'll get a five-inch rain. And then that rainfall is happening on a landscape that's been completely altered. In our process of living and doing what we need to do, um, you know, we've altered the landscape. We've built cities, we've built roads, we've built infrastructure to go across all these rivers and streams and then of course being in Iowa we're a productive state dominated by uh, row crop agriculture and that has an impact on the land as well so when we get those intense rains um, we've altered the landscape in a way that is not conducive to holding those rains so a lot of that runs off and it does so very quickly and so you get this big spike and Next thing you know, you have a flash flood and another episodic event. That's what we're looking at is trying to, you know, slow the water down, allow the river to flood in a more natural way, but also do so in a way that's not, you know, sacrificing our way of living. So I think you might have answered it, but it goes right into my next question. What are we doing to address those issues? The first thing that we've kind of done with these watershed groups is to lay out sort of a long-term plan. How do we alter that landscape in a way that can help to reduce some of these issues? and and so we like to look at it, you know, the best way to stop flood is to start the farthest away from the river as you can get. And that means going to the top of the hill. It's way easier to stop water at the top of the hill when it's just falling, right, than it is to stop it when it's all collected and concentrated and has a really you know, violent velocity at the bottom of the hill. So we try and focus our efforts at the top of the hill. So we're working with communities to put in things like permeable pavers and rain gardens and stormwater infrastructure that can help to absorb some rainwater within the community area rather than, you know, running that off through a storm sewer. That's one way where communities are kind of doing their part. And then um, with counties, we're working with them at looking at their like road infrastructure, especially rather than build a bigger bridge that'll allow more water through quickly. Can they build a smaller structure that will actually temporarily detain water? And, you know, if they can do that in a distributed network throughout the watershed, that can actually really help detain water briefly. And that helps keep those more flashy type of flood events from occurring. And then, of course, working in infields, particularly with private landowners, because most of our land is private land, particularly agricultural producers, and looking at how they can improve their soil health and keep crops uh, living, roots growing in the soil throughout the year. And that helps infiltrate more water more quickly. So if you think about it, you know, there's about 2,500 gallons of water 
in an interrain over an acre. So if you drop an interrain over an acre, it's about 2,500 gallons. If you can increase soil health by just a little bit, you could store several more inches of water on that same acre versus if the soil health is poor. So we're trying to kind of work with farmers to improve their soil health, which also helps their productivity. And so by and large, we can hopefully eventually make an impact on on the whole watershed. Very cool. So speaking of specific projects, you talked about the Turkey River. I know RCND has helped with the Upper Isla River and the Upper Wapsie River watershed resiliency plans. I'm sure as developers, you've done countless hours of research and analyzing data and ultimately recommending how they improve their water, protect the area and reduce flooding. But can you share more about those projects and what they consist of? Yes, yeah, so each of them have kind of formed at different times. Each of those groups, they each um, formed a watershed management authority. And really what we're, you know, our role in that is to, to do planning, but the way we try and do planning is a lot more interactive and kind of what we call applied planning. So rather than just saying from a consultant standpoint, like, okay, we're hired to do this or, or we're contracted to, to do this plan. And so we'll do the plan and then we'll hand it back to you. And then it's your job to to do anything with it. We want to see it succeed, right? Because it's good for all of us. Uh, so what we try to do is this more applied planning approach. And so we work with the partners, we get their input and we come up with solutions for you know these issues of flooding and water quality and we look at it from the standpoint of okay how can each entity that is involved with these groups play a role and then almost like giving them the homework right so which not everybody likes but give them kind of a task and give them something that they can kind of take on and they can then do their part and then help them do it that's kind of the the fun part about working at RCND you can identify things and then kind of go after it and so that's kind of what we've we've done is, uh, you know, try to get outside funding to come in and help some of these communities do some of these stormwater projects. I think, you know, we've written probably close to $5 million worth of grants just for community stormwater projects right in Northeast Iowa. And a lot of these projects look really small and you think, wow, that's the little rain gardens not going to prevent flooding or improve water quality that much. But it's the collective. You have to think of it from that 30,000 foot point of view. And if you collectively start making these changes, eventually you'll start to see things change. So all of these projects, they're probably very similar from your perspective, but is there anything that differ from town to town? I mean, there's a lot of similarities between our towns because we have a lot of small kind of rural towns, but each town kind of has its own flavor. Um, and everybody wants to take a little bit different approach to doing it. And so I think the most different thing that I see from town to town is typically the individuals within there. Um, there's usually a couple of, uh, or maybe several people that kind of champion that cause. They kind of have that vision of what they want that community to be and, you know, what can make it help it grow and what could bring people in from the outside. So that's kind of what, you know, I like to see is sort of those differences within each community and, and the different personalities as far as trying to, to you know, work with them and, and uh, implement something that, that everybody can be proud of and help build the communities. Let's talk about a more recent project, the Kwaski Flood Resiliency Plan. That one is on the forefront of the RCND's plans right now, if I'm not mistaken, but mm -hmm. can you tell us what's happening there? Yeah, talk about personality. Uh, <laughs> Kwaski. <laughs> Kwaski is great. So Kwaski is like this really unique example of a river town. You know, they sit right on the banks of the Upper Wapsie Pinnacan River and don't get flooded by the river for the most part. And it's not that flooding hasn't been an issue in the past. It's essentially that they've sort of addressed it um, and they've kind of done so without 
outside help. Like they just kind of, they have their infrastructure built in a way that it will come up and go down. And um, they've had some really big flood event, but it really doesn't impact the city too much. What they actually have more problems with is like uh, flash flooding from the surrounding area. And so we kind of looked at some different things that they could implement probably outside the community to help them kind of address those issues. They're quite a story. There's an example of one of the residents that they know when the water starts to come up, it's going to flood their garage doors. And so they just literally open the doors on the garage, move some stuff off the floor and the water comes through and then the flood goes down and then they they move, they move on and it's no big deal. So there's kind of these interesting little ways that people just kind of deal with flooding. And it's not so much that, you know, even that, you know, the word resilient means that, that, you know, something can happen and you can bounce back to where you were before, kind of. So that's what they've done, right? So, and but there's a few other things that we kind of help them identify in ways that they can maybe make some changes to, to further address those flooding issues that they're having, so. Expanding just a little bit more, how do these projects I think you said there's 23, 27 yeah. um, watershed management authorities all over the state of Iowa. Does that expand even further into the United States? Is this just like an Iowa thing? And do volunteers take this research on or take that action? Or is how does that work? Oh, that's a good question. Um, it's kind of different state by state as to how each um, state kind of handles this. And so there are watershed management authorities in other states like Minnesota has a watershed authority, but the difference is they actually have authority. So like in Minnesota, these watershed groups can actually like tax, they can levy a tax within their watershed specifically for watershed activities. They're the only state I know that can do that. Otherwise, there's, I think, more statewide. I think other states, it's more kind of on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, so the the watershed management authorities, as they are in Iowa, is is fairly unique. And because of that, you know, they've received, you know, we've kind of, the state has received some attention from other areas. So I wouldn't say it's voluntary. I would say, you know, there's public entities working on it, like the universities, um, University of Iowa, the Iowa Flood Center, um, Iowa DNR is a public entity. They're working on stuff with the Watershed Management Authority. So, you know, there's a lot of state entities that are now working on it, but they've received interest. We, you know, I've gone and spoken and met with people from the state of Texas that have come up and their question was, how do y'all work together so well? And it was like, well, we really just- We're Iowa nice. Exactly. So, um, so that was, we had to teach people from Texas how to get along. And then we had, uh, you know, people from North Carolina actually come up as well. And then we we're going to go down there and kind of see what they have going on. But different type of flooding, but same kind of issues. Love to see it. Iowa leading the way. That's right. Where would a community start? Well, so there's a, a number of experts. So if you're a community, there's experts within the state that now have a role um, with the Iowa Department of Ag and Land Stewardship. They're urban stormwater experts, and they will literally come to the town and, and talk to you about, you know, what can be done within the community uh, to assess water quality and flooding. If community members don't know, you know, there's, um, whether they're in a watershed management or maybe even what watershed they're in, you know, that's step one, find out what watershed you're in. It's not a matter of if you're in a watershed, everybody, everybody lives in a watershed. Um, so find that out and then find out, um, you know, if there's an active group and how you can get involved and, and then go from there. But there's a lot of resources and there's, I would say that list is growing. The number of resources, and when I say resources, I mean like grants or funding opportunities that communities can get a hold of. So everybody's got 
a, lo a long list of bills to pay, especially communities. So bringing in outside fundings can help get some of these projects done without putting a strain on community budgets. Obviously, my job as it relates to marketing in the byways is wondering how do these projects tie back to communities, which I know you just kind of talked about a little bit, but how are towns benefiting or maybe being affected by the watershed management project? We're talking about tourism, right? So, um, you know, people want to come in and ride a bike trail. Oh, a lot of times a bike trail will follow the path of a stream or a river. Well, if that stream or river is flooding frequently, then the bike trails can be closed or even damaged or washed out. Uh, so it's in everybody's best interest that, you know, that stream or river is not flooding and damaging these, you know, trails, which cost, you know, a lot of money to put in and maintain. Um, well, and then from, from that point to, you know, if you're going to, come in to go kayaking but you can't go kayaking because a the river's sky high and it's extremely dangerous so um the more we can keep them down and and flowing naturally then that you know that means they're open to visitors more and of course anytime you have visitors coming then um they're spending they're spending their dollars and supporting local tourism and and businesses so and of course my favorite thing is fishing so um the more our streams and rivers are functioning naturally then that means the better the fishing and that means there's more opportunities for people to come and enjoy that so um, of course all this relates to you know the byways but um, those opportunities along the byways won't be there if we're not you know protecting the landscape that they exist in so it wouldn't be the scenic byway if the scenic areas weren't taken yeah. care of yeah then it's just a road what did I miss? Is there anything else, watershed management, flooding, even other aspects of your job that our audience should know about or you'd like to share? Um, no, I mean, I think we covered it pretty well, but it's, you know, I would just encourage people to, to get involved somehow. And, you know, it, it can be such a little thing of, you know, picking up some garbage. Hey, you know, if you know a landowner or have some land yourself, that it, it takes... It takes a lot of these projects before you start to see an impact and and most of it is um you know kind of a mindset thing it's we just start to do things a little bit differently and if everybody can do a little bit more in their in their little slice of the world then um ultimately we'll see the you know the watershed's response so that would be my advice so i already know you know what's coming so i expect super quick answers it's time for rapid fire are you ready mm-hmm what is your favorite winter activity? Ice fishing. Summer activity? Fishing. Meal or restaurant in Northeast Iowa? Mm, my favorite meal is uh, asparagus with wild turkey and marl mushrooms. Yum. Iowa State or Iowa? Iowa. Go Hawks. Kayak or canoe? Kayak for sure. TJ's Pizza or Mabe's Pizza? Uh, gotta go Mabe's. Casey's or Quickstar? Quickstar, actually. Last question, it's not really rapid fire, but tell us your favorite part about Northeast Iowa or your best piece of advice as it relates to Northeast Iowa. Um, ah, that's, you know, there's so much to do around here. Um, so I guess my advice is to not take it for granted. It's such a, it's such a neat place and you just gotta get out there and do it. So get out there. <laughs> and do it, yeah. That's right. No, that's, that's a good piece of advice. Thank you so much, Ross. Maybe next time we'll get Tori on here to chat with us a little bit more about the environmental education portion of all of these projects, but that is all that we have for now. Can you tell our audience how to connect with you if they have any other questions? Uh, you can always email um, uh, ross at northeastiowarcd.org 
or you can follow us on Facebook or Twitter and one of the projects we're leading on there is a multi-cropping Iowa. And so the handles for Facebook and Twitter are at multi-Iowa. Exactly. So basically, Ross's contact information is the same as RC&D and the Byway contact information. But I always put that in the show notes. And I will be sure to include all of the social media links and project information on this episode for our audience. As always, we strongly encourage you to submit ideas, ask questions, or connect with us. You can find the links in the show notes. And if you're interested in chatting with me, Ross, or anyone else from our CND team, we would love to hear from you. Tune in every week for new episodes highlighting business development, recreational activities, historic locations, natural resources, and of course, helpful hints to make your trip along the byway an incredible one. You can also find us on Facebook, online at northeastiowarcd.org, or by contacting our office in Postville. A special thank you to the staff at RCD in Postville and the Byway coordinators all across Iowa for helping make this podcast possible. Thank you again for listening to Bluffs, Brooks, and Byways. And remember, adventure awaits and the Byway can take you there.